Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8. We left off in verse 4. We're picking back up in verse 5 of Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Go through it here in just a moment as you're finding that. Let me mention, or let me just say, praise God, Pastor Nazmi, thank you. What a, what a wonderful job. I, your English is so good. I'm so impressed by you, and I'm so thankful for the work there. And I, I think Jeff Barkhouse is here. I don't know if his wife Sarah is with him, but I saw him earlier. Uh, Jeff, if you're here, we're so thankful for your decades of ministry there. We're, we're so thankful for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, another church in town that we love. The pastor there, Bill Douglas, there you are, Jeff, and your family. The, the pastor there is like he's, he's like an uncle in the faith to me. So thankful for Caleb and Leah and for the work of the gospel in Kosovo, for Pastor Nazmi and his family. Um, what a privilege it is, church. Come on. This isn't just church in the South where we're just sleepy, lazy Christians just complaining about the coffee. We are together with the global throng of all of those that God in His grace has made alive, that He has promised to bring home, that He will redeem, and He's given us a mission to not just be cranky Christians, but to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel, right? <laughs> so you should, you should sh- sign up for that trip. You, you should go to Uganda this summer. You, I should leave here and go to India in a few hours, which I'm going to do. And we should give our life. We should plant churches, which is what Will Hawk is going to do. We should serve in the nursery. We should love teenagers. We should get to know people who are awkward, and we should take them to lunch and we should do life together because we only have 80 years, so let's not play tiddlywinks. Let's be about the Lord's business. Nazi got me going this morning. I'm sorry. Here, no, I'm not. I don't apologize. Let me read. Okay, Roman, here, okay we're getting into a section in Romans here where it's going it's to start to confront us, okay? <laughs> As if the previous seven chapters haven't. But... These verses today are, are, are they're going to start to confront and indict all of humanity because we're, we're, we're ascending the hill. Remember, Romans 8, is, it's like a mountain peak in Scripture. And we're ascending the hill. And Romans 8 and Romans 9 in particular are, are difficult chapters, wonderful chapters. But they're chapters that are difficult in the sense that they level the pride of mankind, it smashes it, and it exalts the glory of God. And this is good for us, but it's something that we have to wrestle with. So here's what I want to do. We're going we're gonna to focus on verses 5 through 8, but I think it would help us if we read verses 1 through 11 so we got the context. So let me, let me read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll settle down on verses 5 through 8. There is, therefore... Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's where we left off last week. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so verses 1 through 4, we went over last week where he's saying that because of the gospel that we've been talking about for a year now in Romans 1 through 7, and Jesus' work on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, absorbing it, extinguishing it, removing it, satisfying it, canceling it, and not only taking away the wrath of God, but giving us the grace of God and the righteousness of God Himself and the Son, Christ, is the reason why any of us are Christians today. We were dead and now we're alive because Jesus died on the cross and rose again and took away our sin and gave us his righteousness. Now, as a consequence of that, there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, not only that, it's even better, we're enabled to actually live according to the righteous requirement of the law. That doesn't mean that Christians are going to uphold all of the 600 commands of the Old Testament in the law of Moses, but it means that the heart of the law, the spirit of love, we are now enabled where we were unable, we're now enabled to fulfill, and it's fulfilled in us. And now, in verses 5 through 8, Paul is going to separate all humanity into two categories. Now, I'm not going to give you my Mexican food analogy, because every time I give it to you, it ruins the rest of the sermon, because all you think about is Mexican food. But there are only two types of people in the world, just, just like there are only really two types of Mexican food in the world. It's all, it all boils down to a tortilla with beef or chicken. And likewise, Paul is painting with broad strokes here. And there's a lot of nuance to life. There's a lot of complexity in life. But sometimes the scripture speaks with utter, utter clarity. And this is one of those moments. In verses 5 through 8, Paul is not, he's giving a description of how really there are only two types of people. Those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. And I think clearly we'll see as we work through this chapter and hopefully today that he's not just talking about people who 
generally kind of do bad things so they're in the flesh and then people that generally are kind of led by God are in the spirit. He's talking about the unregenerate, those that are not yet born again, that are not believing, and those that have been born again that are made new. The flesh is the natural state of mankind as we're born in sin. And the spirit is the reborn state of man once we've been born again. So let me read verses 5 through 8 again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. Please, God, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, may the meditations of our heart, the words of our mouth, be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Teach us wonderful things out of your word. Exhort, convict, encourage, and stir up the affections of believers in this room and humble and back into a corner, I pray, any unbelievers in this room so that they will finally stop trusting in themselves and look to you alone. I pray that you would do this all for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of any in this room that do not know Jesus yet. I pray it in his name. Amen. All right, briefly, I want us to look at two truths and then to, to reflect on, on these two truths. I think, I think actually what's going on in verses 5 through 8 is actually really quite simple. This is just Paul describing in these few verses really all of humanity. He, he ended verse 4 by saying that, that salvation is the removing of condemnation and the enabling of a person who has been saved, who has been born again, as Will read this morning from John chapter 3, the Spirit gives life, the Spirit causes us to be born again, that the, he ends in verse 4 by saying that the only people that have had condemnation removed and are now enabled to walk in this way of ever-increasing obedience to the Lord are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And before he continues on in verse 9 through really verse 17 to spell out in more detail what it means to walk by the Spirit, to be born again, to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, he clarifies for us in verses 5 through 8 these two types of people, those that walk according to the Spirit, that have been made new, and those that are still in the flesh. Now, all of us start off the same. We've, we've learned that as we've been going through Romans. All of us, because we are all children, we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, who were our first parents, who were in the garden, were, were made with the ability to obey God, but also with the ability to disobey God, and in fact, did disobey God, 
and were thereby excommunicated from God's presence in the garden and now have this sin nature that we have all inherited. All of us are born by nature, separated from God, with a nature that is opposed to God. And so our truth number one here that I want us to see, and I've stated it a few times already, is that ultimately there are only two types of people. There are only two types of people in the world in, in regards to things that matter. Now, in one sense, of course, we, we love the fact that there are differences in culture and differences in language. And aren't we just, I'm just so impressed. Like, you know, like, Nazi can just get up here and speak English. Like, you know what they call people that can speak three languages? They're, they're trilingual, right? You know what they call people that can speak two languages? It's bilingual. You know what they call people that can only speak one language? Americans. <laughs> I mean, I'll get off the plane in India tomorrow, and Emmanuel and Kashul will greet me, and they'll, they speak like four languages. I just, I'm, I'm blown away. So there's differences in our culture. Certainly, there's, I, I, will, I will definitely experience this week that there are differences in food. Last year when I was in India, I made the mistake as I was goaded along by my brothers in Christ to eat a pepper off the street at some vendor in Kalapur. I thought that I had done permanent damage to my, my, not just my tongue, like my whole face. <laughs> and certainly there, there's a beauty, and don't we just rejoice in diversity? Even in this congregation, aren't we so grateful for the different cultures? We're so grateful for, for different languages, different ethnicities, even as we're all really just one human race. Isn't that true? And, and yet, the Bible speaks with utter clarity. It's not disregarding those beautiful things that make up the kaleidoscope of humanity, but it is speaking in regards to our standing before God. There are only two types of people. Those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. And remember, all of us start off being born in the flesh. We are all by nature children of Adam. That's the main argument of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, if you remember, Paul says that there are two heads, two representatives of humanity. Adam and all those that descend from Adam inherit condemnation. And the new Adam, the new and better Adam, Christ who is the perfect man, where Adam was a flawed man, Christ is the perfect man. Now that doesn't mean that Christ came after Adam in a sense chronologically. We know that Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but in the sense that His humanity, in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4 says, Christ comes, God himself, himself takes on flesh, and becomes a new man, and now all those that are in Christ receive His righteousness. And so there are two heads. There are really two types of people, those that are in Adam, in the flesh, and those that are in Christ by the Spirit. And when we see the world in that way, it, it lines us up with how the Bible describes all of humanity. I think, I, I think that's clear to see in this text, which leads us then to Truth number two, 
and this is really important to see, and I think we see it in verses 7 and 8, and it is this, is that those in the flesh, so again, when we say those in the flesh, we're not talking about people who kind of mostly do bad things. We're talking about people who are not yet born again. They're still in that state before salvation. Those in the flesh, here's truth number two, are totally unable to please God. So let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. So verses 5 and 6, he's just contrasted. He said there's people in the flesh, and as a result, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then there's people that are in the spirit, and as a result, they set their mind on the things of the spirit. He's basically saying that you are the way you are because of your nature. He's saying that your behavior stems from your nature. It's not to say that people in the spirit don't sin still, and it's not to say that people that are in the flesh sometimes don't accomplish good things, but he's saying ultimately there are only two types of people. We have a nature, and from that nature comes our actions. And then in verses 7 and 8, let's look at it again. He says, for the mind, he's zeroing in on now. He's wanting to describe for us the complete inability of this one group of people, those whose mind is set on the flesh, those who are still walking according to the flesh. Verse 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, I want you to hear this, It cannot, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, let's just exhale for a moment and admit that's not generally the way we instinctively categorize people, is it? We don't think in these stark realities. But the Bible does present humanity in this way. What does it mean when it says that those that are in the flesh are hostile to God? What do we mean by this? Well, for centuries, theologians have referred to this as the total inability of mankind. Some would would call it total depravity. What, What does that mean? It does not mean that people that are not Christians, that are not yet born again, that are in the flesh, are as bad as they can possibly be. And sometimes when we see that, when we hear that phrase, total depravity, we, we tend to think of, you know, felons or terrorists or people that really do wicked, wicked things. And, and, and that's, that's just kind of the way we, in modern language, understand the word depravity. But that's not the sense. It's not to say that all humanity is as bad as, that could, as it could possibly be. We could be worse in our natural state. But it's to say that every component of humanity in its natural state, our mind, our will, our emotions, all of the ways that we perceive the world, everything that we are able to do is tainted by sin, which renders us, and this is really important, it renders us completely unable to do anything that would merit us before a holy God. Now that does not mean that unbelievers... People that are walking in the flesh, let's use that biblical phrasing, right? Unbelievers, people that are walking in the flesh, don't do good things. We need to learn to distinguish between the common grace that God gives all of mankind and saving grace when God actually makes somebody new. Certainly, the world is full of people who are in the flesh, unbelievers, who are doing things that in a sense are good. There are unbelieving, atheist, 
doctors and scientists that are creating wonderful cures for a whole host of illnesses. And we could look at virtually every aspect of life. There are people that are doing good things, charitable acts that are improving, in a sense, people's lives, right? But what the Bible has in view here is that in regards to pleasing God, because remember, what have we been working up to up to this point? That mankind in his natural state has separated himself from a holy God, and now because God's holiness is far beyond anything that we can even imagine or quantify, how will, this is the dilemma of Romans, how will sinful man in his sinfulness not as wicked as he maybe could be, but in his sinfulness, how will this sinful man, how will hostile, a hostile mind ever do anything to make themselves right with God? And the Bible, I think here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, see this, is intentionally backing us into a corner and showing us that mankind in his natural state is in a predicament where he and she are helpless. We're helpless. We can do good things, in a sense, that help humanity thrive. But even the best of human endeavors are not the type of things that will make us right with the holy, eternal, glorious God whom we have all rebelled against. Do you see that? Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling is the old hymn that we sing. So nobody can stand before God and say, I cured cancer, or I helped so many people with this or that. Although those may be things that have been used by God for, quote, good and human thriving, they will not save a person. Do you see that? And that's what Paul is saying here. You might think, well, Brad, I, I still I don't get it. I've used this analogy several times before. Think about, think about it this way, that any human goodness that does not ultimately give glory to and find its root and its fountain in the goodness of God who alone is good is actually idolatry. So think about a good person who does good things, but does not acknowledge God as the source of those good things. Their mind is, is, in a sense, in the flesh. At the bottom of their motivations, even though we may receive good from it, at the bottom of their motivation is actually a kind of self-serving, self-glorifying, man-centered pride. It's, it's like, and I've used this analogy before, it's like a, a young man who was adopted as a child out of a terrible situation, out of some horrible, helpless situation. And he was adopted by a family that gave him all of the benefits that a young man could have. They gave him a wonderful, stable upbringing. They poured into his life. They sent him to the best college where he got the best degree and then with that degree, he got the best of jobs, and he was making lots of money. And with that money, he was using that money to you know, help people, 
But then it would be like his parents who gave him all of this advantage in life. Once he left home, he cut them off and never acknowledged that they were the source of grace in his life. And even though he was doing all of these good things, when his mom called him, he would look at caller ID and he would just hit ignore. We would say about that guy, not that he was good, but he was some sort of self Like, call your mom. <laughs> like, send her flowers on Mother's Day, you stinker. And we would see that at the end of it, he, just, he doesn't want to acknowledge the source of any good that he has in his life, with t- which taints any good that he does. Do you see that? And that's humanity. We are in the flesh by nature, and we are totally unable to do anything right. And at this point in Romans chapter 8, Paul is just describing things. That's all he's doing, okay? Now, we can preach the gospel from this text, and we will in just a second, because we're not just left at the end of verse 8. But right now, Paul is just describing things. So let's end this by looking at three reflections about what this should produce in us, how we should think about this. First, is that this explains why the world is the way that it is. I know that's pretty broad, <laughs> but this explains why the world is the way it is. Um, I, I love soft jazz, and I love Louis Armstrong, and um, I love to listen to his song, What a Wonderful World. But I think his song, in a sense, is theologically incorrect. And I don't know that my man Louis Armstrong was trying to write a theological treatise. I think he was just trying to entertain people and sell some records, and he did that. You know that, I see trees that are green, red roses too. No, no, don't. You don't want me to sing it. You, you, no. And there's part of the world that is wonderful, that is being renewed day by day. But there's another part of the world that is, that is broken. This should explain why things the way they are. This is why nations rage. This is why, this is why there's such contention in politics. This is that America is not a Christian nation. The, the, we, 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 we are being governed. We are being led by forces of wickedness, this world in its fleshly state is being guided under the providence and the sovereignty of God by the prince of the power of the air that is fighting a war against the kingdom of God and those that he has made new by his spirit. The world is not a neutral place. Listen to what Ephesians 2, how, it, how Ephesians 2 describes the consequence of, of this this. These two kingdoms made up of two types of citizens, those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. He says, Paul speaking to the Ephesians, and he's speaking to all of us before salvation. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's just another way of describing those that are still in the flesh among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so 
This should help us realize that, that the hope of the world is not you know, improvements in society. And this should guard us against a kind of what C.S. Lewis called in his day in the mid-1900s, a kind of chronological snobbery where we look at how the world is kind of basically decent right now, it seems like, and, and boy, these barbarians back in the day, they were really... No, friends, the, the, the world has always been divided into people who are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit, and the world is at war with God's people, his kingdom, which is coming, which will finally and fully be established when Jesus returns again, but for now, it should explain to us why the world is broken. This means we should not put undue hope in politics, this means we should not put undue hope in medical technologies. We, we live in a world that is broken, that will never finally fully be renewed until Jesus comes back, pulls the curtain, and makes everything new. And we live in a kind of tension where the kingdom of God, inhabited by the people who have been made new by the Spirit of God, inhabit an outpost in this dark kingdom, it's called the church, and we're waiting until that day when the victory that has already been won on the cross is finally and fully consummated, and every valley will be filled, every mountain will be leveled, and Christ will be our all in all. And until that day, we will all fight a war and limp to the finish line. So we should not expect too much from this culture around us because it will never actually satisfy us because it is fallen and it's fleshly and it's opposed to the things of God. Secondly, as we reflect on this truth that man is totally unable in his flesh to please God, we see that man's will, and th this is where, listen to me, I, I want to serve you as a pastor now, and I know that we're, we're, we're getting, and it's going to get more controversial than, th than this, so, so buckle up when we get into the second half of Romans 8 and into Romans 9. But man's will is not free before salvation. It is enslaved. Americans love talking about the freedom of the will. But your will is not free. It's enslaved before you come to Christ. And salvation is when your will has been moved from its state of enslavement to being freed so that you can obey God. But even then, it's not free in a, in a libertine, autonomous sort of way. It's not free to do whatever you want. We're not free like God is free. We can't just declare who we want to be. I mean, if that were the case... I declare that I am the quarterback of the San Diego Chargers, my favorite team. Just who I am. That's what I That's ridiculous. We're not free to do whatever we want to do like God is do does. We are free, however, to do whatever our hearts in their natural in their state desire. And the consequence of the fall is that all of our hearts are tainted and fallen. And even though we're free to follow our desires, we are not free to do anything that would merit us salvation before God in and of ourselves. Do you see that? Man is not free in his natural state 
to get himself out of the pit that he is in. In fact, look at Romans chapter 6, what we just went over a few months ago. Look at Romans chapter 6. It uses this language of enslavement. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Romans 6, just a couple chapters over. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So that's talking about salvation. Remember this beautiful doctrine of the union with Christ. We cannot emphasize that enough. But then in verse 6, he speaks retroactively. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That means that before Jesus united himself to you in salvation and made you alive, you were enslaved to sin, so you could do whatever you wanted to do, but you were limited in the fact that you could only do what you would want to do, and the only thing that you would want to do is disobey God. Do you see that? And even if you're a relatively moral good person, even people that seem to be good ultimately are disobeying God, because remember what we just talked about, even their goodness at the bottom of their goodness is a self-man-glorifying, pride-stealing glory that doesn't acknowledge God, so even that goodness is a kind of disobedience. And you're free to do it, but you're not free to step out of it. You're not free to open up the prison door and unshackle yourself and say, okay, I'm finally done with being dead. Now I want to be alive. That's, that's not the way man is in his natural state of enslavement. Friends, this has massive implications. This has massive, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there. I'm going to get some emails from mamas this afternoon, but I'm going to be on a plane to India, and you're going to get an out-of-office reply for a week and a half. <laughs> this means that your sweet little babies are not by nature in the Spirit. This means that parenting is not moralism, it's missions. Do you see that? Moms, 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 you're missionaries. You're missionaries. Your first and most important task is the evangelization of the little fleshly heart that God in his great kindness in his providence, has caused to be born into your family. And I believe that is lots of evidence that God intends to use you as an evangelist, as a missionary, sent to that little fleshly, hostile, unable to submit to God's heart so that through your missionary efforts, not your moralistic teaching, you would confront that little sinner's heart and God would open up the door and cause them to be free. Uh, there's all sorts of implications. That means mom and dad, man, I mean, come on, are you, some of you are in the throes of life where you, it's just, you can't even take your little joker out because you're just embarrassed at how wild your kid is. And shouldn't we have a, a church culture, shouldn't we have a church culture where we understand that? Because what we're going after is not behavior modification. It's the gospel brought to bear on little sinners' hearts. 
And so when we see each of our kids wiling, or whatever the word is, going crazy, we should have sympathy for that parent. We have sympathy for Nazi when he shares the gospel to an unbelieving nation and, and his people in Kosovo, but we don't have sympathy for each other when our kids are going crazy. But friends, it's the same unregenerate heart. Do you see that? And we lie about the gospel when we create success as behavior modification and moralism. And we can talk about, oh, you filled out your sheet and you know all the answers. And we give people false assurance because they're never confronted with the fact that Jesus isn't just about self-improvement or helping us live a better life. It's about us being dead and only he can make us alive. And that should in fact, impact the way we live all of our life, our parenting, our witnessing, our missions. We don't go across the world to help people be more Western. What a wicked endeavor that is, to leave people, to, to guide them into a prosperity that will damn them to hell. No, we, we, we go across the world because we want to take the gospel. We, we plant a church in Midland, not because we want to have a bunch of young people connect with a, a young pastor who's, who's really gifted and have a place to hang out and have mommy groups. No, we, we plant a church in the city because we know that there are people that are dead in their sins and the only hope is Christ. Which then brings us to this third reflection, and it follows from what we were just saying, is that salvation, and we don't see this in this text, verses 5, again, 5 through 8 is just a description, but praise God, we have the whole Bible. We're not just getting fragments of Paul's letter along the way, right? <laughs> praise God, we know the end of the story. We know the rest of Romans. We know the rest of the Bible, and we know that even though there are these two types of people, those are in the flesh and those are in the spirit, and those that are in the flesh are completely unable to do anything to make themselves right with God, then if we're thinking about it, if we're being, if we're being thoughtful here, that begs the question, how does anybody that's in this place, which is all of us that are in the flesh, how, what's, if, if, if we're unable to do anything about it, how do we get from here to there? And friends, that is the scandalous, glorious, good news of the gospel. And it is this, is that salvation is God creating in us what he commands. It's God doing what we could not do. Let me show it to you in the Bible itself. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and Jesus, it's an incredible chapter, a stunning chapter. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds thousands of people. He follows that up by walking on water, and then he preaches a really hard sermon where he says, look, if you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, he was speaking figuratively there he's saying you it's not just you can't just come to me for miracles you have to you have to take my life you have to die with me and 
rise with me. You have to be united to me is what he's saying. And it was a hard saying. And even though the people that had just seen him walk on water and feed thousands of people, that was too hard for them and they walked away. And then in verse 60 of John 6, we pick up and it says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. And they were referring to him saying, you must, again, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. In other words, you have to truly believe in me and take my life. You can't just follow me for signs. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, his disciples said. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. Listen to verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Friends, there's the answer to our question. How do, how do people that are in the flesh, that are completely unable, get to being people that are in the flesh, whose minds are set on the flesh, and produce life and peace with God? By the rich, abundant granting of God. Do you see what the Bible's doing? It's backing us into a corner and showing us that salvation is of God. The good news of the gospel is that God takes his son and makes him a man and Jesus obeys where we have rebelled and then he lays that perfect life down on the cross, and the wrath that should have been ours, he pours out on Jesus, the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, and Jesus, because he's not just a good man, is the infinitely holy God-man, absorbs and satisfies and removes all the wrath of God, and then because Jesus is perfect and didn't die for his own sin, but for our sin, God raised him from the dead, vindicating his godness and his deity and his perfection and now Jesus is alive and gives the very thing he requires and now he's promised that a great multitude of people he will give them life and he will break them out of the dungeon cell and you may think well, wait a minute wait a minute what, 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 that, that, that's that's what, what, that's controversial. What, a minute, what, what about, what about, no friends, right now, if you sense that that's the first time that you've really heard that story, that truth about God's utter power and grace and salvation, and you realize that that is what the Bible is saying, and you're wondering whether or not God has truly made you alive, friends, I think that's evidence that he's actually given you eyes to see and ears to hear. That's the rattling of the keys to the prison cell and the Holy Spirit is about to unlock it. So get up and believe. 
and trust in Christ. You're the pot. How can you stand at the table of the potter and say, how come you can do this? Be grateful that he does. Because friends, that is your only hope. And if you're a Christian and you've gotten stale and grumpy and judgmental and self-righteous and cranky, this should be like the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit blowing humility into every crevice of your life. Amen. I end with this, this beautiful hymn. It was penned centuries ago, I believe, by one of the Wesley brothers. I'm not sure. And can it be, says this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, if that's your, that's your story if you're a Christian. If you're not yet, the Spirit right now is saying to you, Get up and follow me. Let's pray. Father, how prideful, us, how prideful of us to trust in ourselves. How arrogant to think that we have arrived. Humble us, Lord. This room is comprised. There are only two types of people in this room. Those that are in the spirit that you have rescued. That you've freed from the enslavement of the flesh and sin. And those that are still in the flesh. For those of us that are Christians that are in the spirit, Lord, humble us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation as we see the glory of the free grace of the gospel. And for any that are in this room, Lord, I, I, I just plead that you'd give them ears to hear. That they would hear the Spirit say, come. Get up. And come out. And come alive. And be mine. Christ has purchased you for his own. I pray that the Spirit would give ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.